If you will join me in Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, we're going to be looking at the close of Paul's letter to the Philippians this morning as we end our series through this great letter. We'll be looking at verses 14 through 23. The title of our sermon this morning is Christian Kindness, and our keywords for our worshipers and training are gift, need, and thanks. If you're using the Blue ESV Bible, you can find our text on page 982. Now, in 1820, there was a woman by the name of Fanny Crosby, and she was born in 1820. She was an American poet and a hymn writer. Many of you have probably heard her name. You certainly have known her songs. And she was very prolific over the course of her life. She wrote over 8,000 Christian hymns. Her vision for Christ and making Christ known was, was beautiful. It was a clear picture in her life of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The way she looked at life was apparent in her writing and the way that she lived for Jesus and the impact that she had on the world for Christ. Fanny Crosby was blind from infancy. She was, she was blinded by a failed remedy that was meant to cure an eye infection that she had. And one tragedy gave way to another in her life. And shortly after her accident, her father became ill and he died. Her mother hired a maid and her grandmother Eunice taught her to pray and she read Bible stories to her. And the, the, the Crosby family's landlady, Mrs. Hawley, also played an important role in Fanny's life. Mrs. Hawley helped Fanny memorize the Bible. And it's said that she learned five chapters per week and she had entire books of the Bible committed to memory. In 1834, Fanny continued her education at the New York Institute for the Blind, where she later served as a teacher for 23 years. And on March 5th, 1858, Fanny married a fellow teacher, a professor, a famous New York organist named Alexander Van Elstine. After she married, Fanny left the institute. She dedicated the rest of her life to serving the poorest and the most needy of people and supported herself through the vocation of writing hymns. She had an agreement with a publisher, Biglow and Maine, to write three hymns per week. Some of us can't even write one email per week. (laughs) And those were used in Sunday school publications. Her fee was $2 per hymn, and all of that went to her work with the poor. Fanny frequently surpassed her quota. She wrote up to six or seven per week. Today, many of these hymns are still very popular, including Blessed Assurance or To God Be the Glory. And although she enjoyed a success as a writer later in life, it was not always so. In 1874, Fanny was so broke she could not pay her rent and even faced an eviction notice. And as was common, as a result of this, she simply began to pray. She committed her situation to Jesus. And a few minutes later, an unknown man approached her, handed her a $10 bill, which was the exact amount of money she needed for her rent. And later that night, she wrote, All the Way My Savior Leads Me, a a great hymn of dependence on God to provide for all of our needs. And so as both a, a songwriter and a woman of great faith, Fanny Crosby is an example to us in life of living dependent upon our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, despite adversity, despite disability. 
It's easy to consider her situation and to sort of want to pity her, but this is not how Fanny saw her life. Once a preacher asked her if she was upset that she had never been able to see, and her answer was simply no, and then he asked her why, and she said, because when I get to heaven, the first thing that I will ever see is the face of my Savior. And as we come to the end of our series through Paul's letter to the Philippians this morning, we come to the end of of a, a letter that is full of some wonderful treasures. But one of those treasures that we've seen time and time again, we see one final time this morning. We'll see the Apostle Paul expressing thanks to the church for their generosity toward him in his life and ministry. But he's continuing to show, even to the last of this letter, what it looks like to live a life dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ. A life of faith in Christ to supply our every need. And of course, we see that God uses the generosity. He uses the kindness of his people to provide for those needs. He uses the saints of his church from the abundance of his riches for his glory to meet the needs of his people. And we see that in our text this morning. So let's read together in Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you, Philippians, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now, before we get into the text itself, it's important once again to orient our minds around and to remember the context in which Paul is writing. We need to have a grasp on exactly what's going on so that the things he's writing and the ways that he's writing them make sense to us moving forward. You'll recall that the apostle is in prison in Rome awaiting trial because he has been preaching the gospel against the will of the authorities. And Paul didn't have a nice cell. This wasn't a place with cable television and a bed. He didn't get to go to the gym and go out in the yard once a day to get some fresh air. It was more like what we would picture as a dungeon. And in that dungeon, he was chained against the wall to a guard on each side of him every single day. And so if Paul's needs were to be met, if he was to receive food and drink and those things that kept him alive, they would have to be supplied by family or friends or ministry partners. It wasn't provided by the tax dollars of the Roman citizens. So Paul needed help if he was going to stay alive. So the Philippian church sent Epaphroditus. Remember, they sent one of their own men, a faithful man. By all indications, it doesn't seem that Epaphroditus was a pastor. 
It doesn't say that he was a deacon. He was a member of the church at Philippi. He had time. He had the ability to travel to Paul to deliver the gift that the church was sending. Now, remember, we saw this a few weeks back when we saw what Paul said about Epaphroditus. As he was traveling to see Paul, he grew very ill, near death, in fact. And earlier in this letter, Paul mentioned that he was sending Epaphroditus back to the church in Philippi, first to deliver the letter to them, but also because they could care for him in ways that he obviously could not from prison now that he was very ill. And he called on them to receive him back with love and care and great mercy. So the church sent along with Epaphroditus a gift. And obviously that was a monetary gift. And Paul will mention that gift in the text this morning. And in that gift, Paul had more than he needed, he says, to provide for himself. Now we've said all along that the affection that Paul has for this church at Philippi is evident throughout the letter. It's a wonderfully encouraging and hope-filled letter. He's spurring the church on to love the good works in Christ Jesus that he has given them to do. They were obviously a very healthy church. Their priorities were set in order, and it's evidenced through what we're going to look at this morning, their generosity, their kindness to this brother in need. And we end with a very simple and yet a very important reminder to the church, the call on Christians to be filled with kindness, to be filled with generosity, and a reminder that we are called as God's people to live faithfully day by day upon Christ, fulfilling our needs. And he does that through one another as the church bears the needs, bears the burdens of others that God might be glorified in expressing and displaying the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. So let's look more carefully. Our first point this morning we see in verses 14 through 16, that Christians have a joyful obligation to be generous to one another. Now, if you think back to chapter 1 and verses 3 through 5, you'll notice a similarity here. Paul wrote back there in those verses, he wrote this, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, once again, Paul is pointing out that the Philippians have been very generous to him. And we saw them uh, early on as partners with Paul in his work of the gospel. They were his partners in ministry. They supported him and all that he was striving to do for the kingdom of God. And back when we looked at chapter 1, we saw a distinction between the Philippians, not just being the friends of Paul and not just being those who every now and then gave him a little bit of something to continue his work, but he used a word that really identifies that they're having true fellowship together. That they weren't just friends, but they, they had a bond, they had a fellowship. And, and it was, was primarily about how much of themselves they were willing to give up. And that's true fellowship, right? It's, it's not just that we are acquainted with one another, but that we're giving up ourselves for the benefit of one another. It's not just when friends are committed to a common cause or goal but it is our, our common pursuit of fulfilling that goal by dying to ourselves for the benefit of one another. And that partnership is what Paul was writing about with the, the Philippians. It's a fellowship. 
It's a bond. It's a significant unity because they were dying to themselves for the sake of Paul, and Paul had died to himself for their sake. And it tied them together for a greater cause, to a greater love, to a greater mutual concern. It's a warm and generous relationship based on a mutual commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so here at the end of the letter, we get an even clearer understanding of that kind of fellowship that Paul had with the church in Philippi. We see even more clearly what they were doing for him. But I love how he starts verse 14. I just love the simplicity of the statement. And yet, with this simplicity comes tremendous power. He says, it was kind of you to share in my trouble. It reminds me of the command that Paul gave in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32 when he tells the Christians that they are to be kind to one another. Now, not one of us, not a single person in this room is naturally kind in the biblical sense. We just aren't. A a person might be humble, but kindness is something else entirely. Kindness is something that is not natural. It's not a natural instinct of the human heart because the natural instinct in the human heart is selfishness. Now, people can fake kindness, It happens all the time, but if you really dig deep into their motives as to why they're even seeking to do that, there's something else going on there. There's some some kind of reward attached to it. Either that person receives something or they have a feeling that they're they're looking for if they do something in their relationship that that the other person might be able to fill, as we, we talked a bit about in Sunday school this morning. But true biblical kindness is not natural. It is completely 100% selfless. Think about it. When's the last time that any of us did something that was 100% selfless? It only happens by a supernatural work of God. It only happens when God changes us and makes us new creations and we, we put off the old self of selfishness and pride and brashness and harshness and put on the new self of humility. The humility that comes when we recognize that Christ himself has died for us. And then and only then, living upon that reality, might we be genuinely kind to one another. That only happens by the hand of God, giving us new hearts and new desires. So this is the kind of thing Paul sees in the Philippians. And we said last week, when, when, he, when we see something like this at work in a church, it's, it's just mind-blowing. It's, it's an overwhelming reality at times that defies any kind of logical explanation. It's not normal that people would be biblically kind to one another. And that's something that the Lord uses to show the world the worth and beauty of His church. We love one another. In what way? Well, we show our love to one another in one way through our kindness. By dying to ourselves. Remember back in chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 2, that was Paul's entire push for the church to, to die to themselves, to live to the advantage of one another. That's kindness. And one way God has solidified this in the pages of Scripture is to point out the church in Philippi and how they were living this out. It's beautiful. Paul goes on to describe what that looked like, how that happened. Notice what he writes. He says, No other church entered into partnership with me 
in giving and receiving except you only. Now, it's not like Paul hadn't gone and loved and served and ministered to and preached and counseled and, and provided for other churches. He certainly did. I mean, most, most of the Gentile world, where there were Christians, they were Christians because of Paul's initial ministry to them. And yet, in all of his labors, in all of the people and churches he showed genuine gospel-centered kindness to, there was one church that shared in this fellowship with him through giving and receiving, it was the church in Philippi. They weren't in prison with him, but they participated in his afflictions by their kindness. And in this instance, it was through their willingness to send one of their own men to minister to him and to send a monetary sacrifice along with him. And let's not forget, Paul pointed out at the end of chapter 1 that these aren't people who are living on top of piles of money in luxury and ease. They, too, were experiencing suffering, but they gave anyway. I want to remind us of something we thought about last week. And that is that giving to the mission and ministry of the church to bring the gospel to the nations is a biblical indicator of a church's spiritual health. Giving to mission and ministry is, is a substantive way of showing whether or not the church is healthy. And it's evidence of participation in the fellowship of the gospel. In fact, if we're not giving to gospel ministry, we have no part in it. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What we do with our resources is a window into our souls. So when there's a glimpse through that window into your soul, is what is seen that you are kind to share in the troubles of the church? Listen to the example of the Philippians. When Paul left Philippi and traveled 95 miles down to Thessalonica, the poverty-stricken Philippians repeatedly sent representatives to Thessalonica with gifts to meet their needs. And then when, when Paul left Macedonia, there remained the only church that supported him. Even when Paul went to wealthy Corinth, and remember, the people there were so, pride, uh, so prideful that Paul said, I'm not receiving any money from you. It was the Philippians of Macedonia who helped him, who supported him. And Paul explained to the Corinthians, and when I was with you, when I was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. The Philippians' generosity was over the top. Most certainly, they were giving from a heart of kindness. Brothers and sisters, this example of this church must be a challenge to us to fulfill our obligation to be generous. But, but we have to pray that it's not out of a sense of obligation or duty, even though that exists, but out of a genuine biblical kindness, because we want to share in the joys, we want to share in the triumphs as well as share in the suffering and the trials and the sorrows and the hardships that come in bringing the gospel to a lost world. It's all part of it. One of my favorite passages in the New Testament is 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And Paul is writing about this church. He's writing about the Philippians. He's referencing them as Macedonians. But when he's writing about this church, he says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, so notice they're in affliction. 
They're being persecuted. They're, they're poor. They're as poor as poor can be at this point. And Paul goes on, he says, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, that sounds like a conflict of ideas, doesn't it? Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed into a wealth of generosity on their part. You see what he says? They were afflicted, they were filled with joy in Christ, and they were living in extreme poverty. That's an odd mixture of descriptors. But what happened? It says, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify. So they gave to the work of Paul's ministry. He can testify to it because he was both witness to it and the recipient of it. And, and it says that they not only gave to him according to their means, but Paul writes, and beyond their means, on their own accord, begging earnestly for the favor of taking part of the relief of the saints, and this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And so they gave what they could from what they had, but then they also gave what they really didn't have and probably shouldn't have given by earthly standards. In other words, they gave until it hurt because they saw that others were hurting more. They gave up comfort. They probably gave up food. They, in other words, they, they gave until it hurt, and they gave beyond that because they wanted to meet the needs of others. It hurt them to be so generous, but Paul said that not only were they giving, they were begging for the opportunity to do so. I have a picture in my mind that they were giving to Paul, and, and at some point he said, no, please, it's enough. You've given enough but they wouldn't have it. They continued to press and they continued to want to give. They couldn't stand the thought of others being without who were brothers and sisters in need. This is unbelievable. I, I don't know about you, but that, leaves, that, that, that sort of levels me out because you and I don't live in that kind of environment. We don't live in that kind of need and that kind of poverty and that kind of despair. So it's, it's hard to really conceptualize how, dis, how, how desperate their situation was and yet how generous they were on top of that, how kind they were regardless. But they did it all, and Paul wrote that they did it all out of an abundance of joy. In other words, their joy in Christ, their joy in their salvation was so overwhelming that it overflowed in them showing this Christian kindness to others. And they were begging to give to meet the needs of the saints that the progress of the kingdom might advance. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful picture. So what happens with that? What happens with that kind of kindness, with that kind of generosity? We see that in our second point this morning, verses 17 and 18, that the Lord will multiply the fruit of our generosity. Now here Paul wants to make sure that the Philippians know that he's not writing this letter to them to say, hey, you guys have been really great in supporting me, but I want to ask if you wouldn't mind donating just a little bit more. This isn't one of those letters you get in the mail around election time. <laughs> Thank you for all of your previous support. Look at all of the wonderful things we've done. By the way, 
send more money, and we've enclosed a, an envelope that already has a stamp on it. Well, thank you for going out on a limb and including a 34-cent stamp. I love getting those letters from schools I've graduated from. They ask for my generous support. I don't know about you, but I thought all of those years of tuition was very generous support. <laughs> but Paul's not, Paul's not making his argument to say that I want more from you. He's making his argument to say, I have received from you so much. In fact, I've received more than I could have ever asked for. In other words, you've done more than enough for me. But he does have a goal here. And his goal is to encourage the Philippians to see what they've done and what he seeks is the fruit that increases to your credit. That's how he says it. And the language he uses here is actually financial language talking about compounding interest. But here it's a compounding spiritual interest credited to their heavenly accounts. In other words, as they give and support and provide and love through their kindness and, and through their generosity, they can be sure, assured that there is a massive return on their investment. This is the significant fruit that comes as a result of their kindness. There is a wonderful return that comes as a result of them being generous. Remember, Jesus composed a proverb to help us remember this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. We see that with the Philippians. That's exactly what they were doing. They had nothing and they gave nothing. They gave all, anything that they did have, they gave it away. What were they doing? They were storing up treasures in heaven. The world would have called it foolish. But Christ calls it storing up treasure in heaven. All that they've done, Paul writes, sending Epaphroditus, sending another financial gift on top of what they've already done, all of this, their kindness, their generosity, is all a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Now the image there, of course, is, is that of an Old Testament burnt offering that pleased the Lord when they were offered by faith with a pure heart and in a manner that was according to what God commanded, and God called it acceptable and pleasing as a sacrifice. What really pleases God as a sacrifice of our lives is a generous spirit. Why? Why is it pleasing to God? Why is God pleased by a generous spirit of His people? Well, Paul goes on to show us in verses 19 and 20 that God puts His riches on display through the generosity of His people. Read again verse 19, it says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now notice the amazing promise that Paul is giving to the Philippians. God will supply every need. Not every whim, not every want, but every need. You will not be lacking. You will not be in need. It will be supplied. That is tremendously encouraging and hope-filled, isn't it? This was intensely personal for Paul. 
His God, who had repeatedly displayed his power in every conceivable circumstance, would supply the Philippians' need just as he had done for Paul, just as he did for Fanny Crosby, just as he does for you and me. And this meant for the Philippians that God would meet any material need created by their great generosity to Paul. Furthermore, in regard to the spiritual condition, the spiritual concerns that have been laid out through this letter, God would supply the need for joy and steadfastness and for endurance and for humility, all in the midst of some really difficult circumstances. The stunning scope of the promise is that there is not one thing that they or any faithful Christian truly needs that God will not provide. And on the basis of this, we can proclaim to every generous believer that God will meet his or her needs as they arise. But to, gr- to those who are the grudging, those who have no generosity in their hearts, there is no such solace. The wholesale application of this great promise does not exist. It, 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 it is for the generous follower of Christ alone. And all of it is according to the riches in glory in Christ Jesus. This is what it's all about. God created the world and all that is in it to show that He is rich in glory. God's greatest end, God's greatest desire, God's greatest purpose is to display to the world the richness of His glory. It's why all of creation is commanded to glorify Him. It's why sin is described as falling short of the glory of God. So God's great purpose, God's great design is to show that He is rich. He's overflowing in abundant richness in glory. And that all comes down to a very practical reality that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Don't boast in what you have. Boast only in Christ because all that you have, all that you call yours, you have because of God and because it has been given to you from the riches, from the abundance of His glory. All that you have physically, all that you have materially, but all that you are and all that you have spiritually is all because of Christ. And listen, how rich is God? God's riches are infinite. And they cannot be diminished by the endless zeros of a celestial blank check that He has given to His children. And so, we can grasp the significance of that blessing in part, but we will never understand the depths and the fullness because we can never add enough zeros to that number to show His richness. And this is the Lord saying, everything you have is gift because I want to show how rich I am and there's more coming because I will meet every need of every one of my children in glory in Jesus Christ. So we shouldn't be surprised that when Paul writes about this, his immediate response before he ends the letter is doxology. His immediate response 
It's like he was writing and he couldn't help but pause for a sentence and go straight to doxology, straight to praising God. He writes about the richness of the glory of God and he says, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And for Christians, every need is met in Christ and and praise to God should explode from our hearts as we think on that great reality. He is our beginning and our end and all things come to us through him. And so Paul ends his letter. And even here we get a glimpse of God's kindness through the greetings he sends. It may not be immediately obvious, but we see in verses 21 through 23 that the grace of God reaches even the deepest dungeons on earth. Look again at verse 21. He says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now, the Philippians no doubt would have been surprised in reading how Paul wrote this. And no doubt it would have put a big smile on their faces. Remember those soldiers guarding Paul? They were hand-picked soldiers. They received double pay for their service in Rome. And most certainly, these being the elitist of the troops, they had access to the house of Caesar. And so what's going on? Well, through the Apostle Paul, we saw this earlier in the letter, some of these very men that were appointed to guard him were hearing from Paul the gospel, and by faith they were being transformed, being made new creations in Christ. And as they told others about the gospel, there were people even within the household of Caesar who were becoming Christians, and they now were sending their greetings to the church in Philippi. John Calvin wrote of this, he said, It is evidence of divine mercy that the gospel had penetrated that pit of all crimes and iniquities. Yes. Yes. Though both the Philippians and Paul were under Roman oppression, there were brothers and sisters within Caesar's walls who were on their side and who were praying for them. And so... This innocuous final greeting trumpets this grand reality that one day the very seat of imperial power will bow its knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And what about you? That's the question that this final greeting being sent asks us. What about you? Will you bow your knee willingly or unwillingly? Will you live by faith upon Christ who supplies our every need out of the abundance of his riches and glory? If you do not know Christ, you too will bow your knee. One day every knee shall bow and every tongue confess in heaven, on earth, and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so the call that Christ gives to you is by faith to come to Him. That you would trust in His perfect, law-fulfilling life, a life lived that you're required to live but cannot live on your own, a death died that you deserve to die for your sin, receiving upon Himself the full weight of the wrath of God, that you need not die in place of your own sins, but Christ has done that for you. 
And then Christ was buried in the ground and three days later raised to defeat sin, to defeat death, that we have the hope of glory, that with him we will dwell forever and ever and ever. And in doing so, receive the full reward of the treasures that are being stored up in heaven in abundance, that we forever might enjoy the riches of the glory of God. And so if you're not in Christ this morning, he calls you, he bids you to come and to die to yourself and to live upon him. And he will not turn you away. And by love, he will receive you and he will give you new life. And for those who are in Christ, we have a great Savior, do we not? And he has given us great hope this morning as we've looked to his word. He's given us great hope as we've worked through this wonderful letter to the Philippians. And may it be a call to all of us that we would strive to be a people who are filled with Christian kindness, a work that only God can do in our hearts, dying to ourselves, living for the advantage of one another to display as the church the riches of the mercy of God in His glory. Everything is of God's grace. May we trust upon Him for all of our needs that He supplies in abundance. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we give you thanks for your powerful, soul-stirring, hope-giving, faithful, infallible word. And we thank you this morning that we have been challenged in how you call on us to live as your people, but we've also been filled with hope and assurance that all that is yours is ours. As the king told his son, as he, as he wanted, as he longed for, and he said, son, all that I have is yours. You have told us that in your word today. That the riches of your glory are on display and they are poured out in abundance so that we have far beyond anything that we could ever say we need. And yet there's more and more and more. And everlastingly, we will enjoy the benefits of your glory. And so we pray today, O oh God, that our hearts too would sing with Paul's a doxology of praise. That as we think about your promise and as we seek to live by faith and you supply all that we need in order to do so, that we too would give praise to the glory of God the Father. And we pray asking all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.